0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the United States accelerating its expulsion of Haitian migrants. Also going to be talking about the latest developments of the Iran nuclear deal and much, much more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. Before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind.
1: Well, there were pride celebrations all across the country this weekend with parades and parties and families and fun. And I stopped by the D.C. Pride Parade for a little while as I was out and about this Saturday, and I recalled the evolution of pride in Washington, D.C., and how far it has come. Now, I don't remember all of D.C. LGBTQ history, but I remember reading about information important to gay and trans rights in the Washington Blade, which was established in 1969 and was originally called the Gay Blade. The very first gay pride celebration was held in D.C. in 1972. There was some backlash, but I remember my mom saying something like, people need to get over themselves and just let people live. That was the totality of the conversation around homosexuality in my household. Let people live. I remember when Lambda Rising opened in 1974. Now, I was just a kid, but I loved books already. And I heard that there was this new bookstore opening, and I wanted to go see what kind of books were being sold in this bookstore that got some folks in D.C. all riled up. My mom did indeed take me a few months later, and it was great. I remember when the Whitman Walker Clinic was founded in 1978, the March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights in 1979, and the founding of the Gay Men's Chorus in 1981. The high heel drag race started in 1986 in DuPont Circle, the week before Halloween, and they were as much fun as they sounded. And they're actually resuming them after being canceled due to COVID. I remember the first time the AIDS quilt was displayed on the National Mall in 1987. I went to the mall with some friends and I helped them find their family members' panels. We cried with so many thousands of others who mourned the untimely deaths of their loved ones, not only to the disease, but to the continued demonization they suffered by hateful people in this society. I walked in the D.C. AIDS Walk in 1987. I went to the first D.C. Black Pride celebration in 1991. Then transgender rights issues came to the forefront in 1995 when Tyra Hunter, a transgendered victim of a traffic accident, was neglected by EMS paramedics because she was transgendered. And that sparked protests and investigations of the D.C. Fire Department and EMS and their handling of transgendered people. The Supreme Court finally overturned state sodomy laws in 2003. Now, the D.C. City Council actually legalized private consensual sodomy in 1993. I know how archaic that sounds, but that's exactly what the bill stated. But Congress overruled the D.C. City Council and kept the sodomy laws in place. There were, of course, protests against Don't Ask, Don't Tell, against the horrible Defense of Marriage Act, and celebration when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed in 2011, when the Supreme Court overturned parts of the Defense of Marriage Act in 2013, and when gay marriage was finally legalized in all 50 states in 2015, 2015. So pride events across the country this weekend and certainly in D.C. were definitely a celebration of how far and how many obstacles have been overcome in the fight for equal rights for LGBTQ people in America. But just this weekend... In Cordellin, Idaho, 31 men believed to be linked to a white nationalist group called Patriot Front were arrested. They had plans to riot at the Pride event there. Authorities say that all 31 individuals were from outside the local area, and they believe that they picked Cordellin out of all the Pride events in the nation because they thought they could get away with more in a smaller community like Cordalene, which is a city of about 56,000 residents. Equal rights for LGBTQ people has come a long way, but we still must fight to protect not only their legal rights in states that are passing hateful, discriminatory, and dangerous anti-trans bills targeting transgender children and youth right now, but we also have to be ever mindful of continued threats of violence against members of the LGBTQ community simply because they exist. The struggle continues. And tonight is the second in a series of televised hearings of the House Select Committee for the January 6th investigation. It's expected that evidence will be presented that proves that Trump knew he had lost the election, but went on with his big lie campaign that the election was stolen from him anyway. Chris Steierwalt, a former Fox News political editor who helped call President Joe Biden's win in Arizona, is expected to testify, which should be interesting. Stierwalt had publicly criticized his former Fox colleagues for creating the atmosphere that led to the January 6th attack. But Trump's former campaign manager, Bill Stepien, will no longer be testifying because he said, or his campaign said, a family emergency. But no, it's not. It's not because of a family emergency, all Stepien is the campaign manager for Liz Cheney's primary challenger, Harriet Hageman. And it sure would look weird if Stepien testified against Trump and his lies while he's managing the campaign of the pro-Trump woman who is running against Liz Cheney. Instead, Stepien's attorney will make some kind of statement, but I'm not sure it's going to be enough for Stepien to save face or to save Hageman's campaign, because Liz Cheney is looking really sympathetic right now. But we shall see. Follow Luke Mann Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Nation for lots of great content.
0: Those are today's talking points, and you are listen to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Spunnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luke Mann. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. And we're now happy to be joined by Albert St. John, community organizer and immigration advocate. Albert, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Peace. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. And Albert, it's being reported that the Joe Biden administration in the month of May expelled nearly 4000 Haitian migrants from the country on 36 deportation flights, which is a notable uh, increase of uh, expulsions Mm -hmm. over uh, uh, the last three months or so. And, you know, this is uh, happening, of course, while uh, humanitarian crisis uh, in Haiti uh, 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 seems to intensify. I mean, according to the International Organization for Migration, uh, one of the largest sort of non-governmental aid groups In Haiti, Uh, they said that there were more than uh, 200 kidnappings in May. Of course, there's ongoing fallout being felt from the uh, assassination of de facto President Jovenel Moïse. And I'm just wondering, you know, you're sort of viewing this uh, serious uptick in expulsions of Haitian migrants from the U.S. And what do you think it reveals about uh, the Biden uh, immigration policy?
3: Yeah, well, I think that um, one thing that it shows, because i like if I could go back to last year when you know the infamous um, roundup of uh, twenty thousand Haitians at the border Del Rio when um you know there the was the the photo of the um of the cowboy on the last so it looked like something out of Django Unchained um uh, back to that time when that was happening there were many Haitians who were uh, Haitian Americans who were firmly uh, on Biden's side because you know loyalty to the Democratic Party and whatnot. That were um that that were trying to say that hey look this had to happen it was they were just making excuse for him saying that it had to happen was necessary there's no way you can accept this many people coming over the border it'll set a bad precedent and keep more people from coming blah blah that was something specifically somebody had told me that it was going by doing that it would deter more people from coming and and you won't see deportations like this again however if you look back um, between May and when was that? Uh, I believe that was February of last year. It has been happening. Um, you've had upticks in different parts um, of, 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 of during that time, um, um, within that time frame. You've had upticks in December. You've had upticks in September. In um, this year, um, th- th- there have been, you know, like uh, months where you see 32 flights, 35. And what, that uh, mass expulsion did from Del Rio on to now, what it did was kind of set forth a precedent of how they would treat Haitian migrants from then on. At one point in time, even though Haitians make up about 6% of the people crossing over the border, about um, at one point in time, they made up about 60% of the people um, being sent back home on flight. And mind you, this is happening at the same time that the Biden administration... Is welcoming a, a, an enormous amount of Ukrainian refugees, um, over from, from Ukraine. Um, and so, you know, clearly this is, you know, clearly racism, like, is the main driver behind these decisions. Because it doesn't make sense that you would cause and sow chaos in a country, destabilize a country. You did this. Not pulling nobody else. You destabilized Haiti. And, and and you helped cause the scenario, and now you're deporting people back to the scenario, and and they're said, they're given like they said they're giving about like thirteen million dollars or something like that, um to give out to the to to to, to, to divide among all the people being sent back to Haiti. Um, I, I don't I'm not sure how many how much that amounts to to each individual family or or a person, but I can assure you it's not much. And it probably doesn't go far in a country where um, more than half the people are unemployed. This says, all this says about the Biden administration is what I've been saying every time um, that I've been on here. The Biden administration is just here to uphold white supremacy. And this is one of the many ways in which they are upholding white supremacy.
1: Yeah, particularly since the uh, you know the assassination of uh, Jovenel Moise has has made the situation with the government in in Haiti even worse. Particularly because there there really isn't a government in Haiti that uh, Haitians actually recognize. And what has the situation for? Uh, immigrants who have been forced to go back to Haiti, what have they faced uh, when they have returned over this time frame where uh, Biden has uh, expelled so many Haitian refugees?
3: Well, I mean, first of all, it's a huge burden on an already almost non-existent uh, social net in Haiti. There's no social net in Haiti whatsoever. So to dump that many people, Onto the country that, um, in the state that it's in, in the state of chaos that it's in, um, at at this particular time, right? The people, uh, like the country, even in good times, would not have been able to receive this many people. Back when Obama was deporting this many Haitians when they first started coming up from the southern border, now they're especially not able to take on this many people when there are even more. The numbers are even bigger than when they were getting deported back in the Obama years um, and, and, and during the Trump years. And um, and you have situations where uh, one infant died um, in a Haitian hospital after coming off of one of the expulsion flights, not getting the care that he that, um, that needed to get um, at um, either in Mexico or in the U.S. Um, and in Haiti, you know, they're, they're just not equipped to handle that. And to have such a large influx of people at one time, people are not finding work. People, um, a lot of these people have been living in South America 10 years or more since the earthquake or before that, um, because that's how they ended up in South America. But uh, let's get one thing straight. Majority of people that are on the explosion flight are people that once lived in South America, Brazil and Chile, um, because they were allowed visas there after the earthquake. So now, They're making this trek through dangerous jungles, harsh terrains, through countries where anti-blackness is extremely prevalent. People have been raped. People have been killed. There have been massacres. And now they're being sent back to Haiti, a country they hadn't stepped foot in since before the earthquake. And so many of these people are starting from scratch. A lot of their social networks are gone um, a lot of the people that were there in Haiti were actually depending on them to send money back home. And so now that they were the breadwinners, they're back home, they're not getting any money. That's not only affecting them, it's affecting the families they left back home. You have people wandering the streets looking for a place to live. There's not enough places to, to, to stay. And not to mention the fact that last month there were 200 kidnappings um, Port-au-Prince alone. Which is where most of the people are landing. So yeah, there's a lot of instability. It seems almost intentional that the Biden administration is taking advantage of the fact that there's instability in the country to be able to dump as many people as they can over there without anybody giving any kind of pushback or, or any kind of protest.
0: Yeah, and I mean the uh, the role of the U.S. in the instability inside Haiti, I don't think can be. Um, understated, Albert. I mean, recently we know that the Biden administration hosted this uh, complete flop of a, um, a Summit for the Americas where w- within it uh, Ariel Henry was invited who is now the sort of de facto, basically hand-picked leader of uh, the country. But I mean, he has no constitutional mandate. I mean, it, it basically is like an illegal government that to me sort of feels like a caretaker situation to perhaps they, they find someone else. But I feel like that all filters down To this same issue. And I think what you noted earlier is very important about um, the Biden administration's sympathy. Um, towards, you know, Ukrainian refugees, even to the point of having like a sponsorship program here in the U.S., yet we're seeing an increase of expulsion of Haitians. So when you uh, highlight the racism of it, that seems pretty glaring. And to me, that's compounded when you think about how, you know, uh, immediately following uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we saw uh, Africans and Caribbeans and other uh, uh, black and people of color in Ukraine trying to escape that were getting uh, a racist treatment and not even being allowed to leave at first until uh, basically people made enough of a fuss about it online. And so just the fundamental uh, uh, white supremacist character of all of this, I think is really central to understanding it, Albert. And I'm also wondering, because when we talk about these thousands of people that get expelled from the U.S., we're not talking about a bunch of individuals living in a vacuums, right? These are people with uh, families and communities and networks. And so, you know, from your perspective, what kind of impact do these uh, uh, expulsions have on uh, migrant communities, you know, here in the U.S. where, I mean, we see this kind of violence just continue to roll on?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, big shout out to, uh, um, I want to say to Eugene Perrier, um, who uh, from the BT News, who, um, who called out the Biden administration at the OAS summit uh, for inviting Ariel Henry, Henry for the hypocrisy on saying they didn't invite Venezuela and Cuba because um they uh those countries aren't democratic yet here you are <laughs> don't forget the fact that you tampered with the previous two elections in Haiti um and and in and, and impeded on democracy there you also invited someone who was not democratically elected to the summit who um so me, big shout out for him for for doing that but now, like, the impact that that's having, having on the communities here, like, um, you know, there's huge Haitian diasporas in New York, Miami, Boston, Philadelphia, um, and, and so on in DC as well. And basically, it's, so these communities are already, we, we already live in areas that are constrained. And these, uh, many people here, um, were keeping contact with, um, their family members that were making that trek, making that um, <clears throat> that journey here. <clears throat> now, many people were already reluctant because of the pressures of gentrification, because of the stringent immigration laws since uh, 9-11, which has made it hard for uh, particularly Black immigrants to get citizenship and, and, or residency here in this country. Now, the people that were ready to receive those people or, or, and be reunited with family members um, it's hard for them. Many of them spent money to uh, trying to get um uh, some of their relatives here making that dangerous trek. And so now to see them get expelled and all of that, that's more resources that they don't have. And then in addition to that, um many of the people here, just like those that left South America, they are the main source of income for a lot of their families back home in Haiti. And so now um with uh, that, other source being cut off, right? Because um, you know the migrants aren't able to come here and work and whatnot, and and now they're being sent back home. That's an extra burden for Haitian Americans in the United States. Now, the the biggest problem that we have in, in, um, in, in this um com- these communities are that we have a lot of just like in every other black community in the United States, we have a class of boule house. So, so-and-so's, if you get my drift, who are in control of our communities. And a lot of this information does not get disseminated, um, right? They do not—there's um, no political education in the communities behind the deportations and what they mean. Everything is, um, um, is about making sure that the community continues to fall in line with the Democratic Party platform. Right now, because of these deportations, And what we're seeing is causing a huge schism. Because at the same time that we're seeing the Biden administration appoint a Haitian-American queer uh, secretary, uh, press secretary, right, as symbolism, there was a point in time when the community by and large would have applauded that and said, right on, you know, they would have embraced that symbolism. But now because that, that is being just opposed with these mass deportations, people in the Haitian community are no longer celebrating these symbolic victories anymore of the first Haitian American this and the first black they're not celebrating that anymore. Um um they're they're starting to get hit to um those who are 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 representatives or the quote unquote representatives of their communities, the the politicians and whatnot they're start, They're starting to break away from that. Their politics are kind of um, recentering around something a little bit more anti-imperialist, because they're starting to recognize that this is the same old, regardless of what face they put, um, you know, whatever black face with the francophone last name to try to relate to us. It is not. It is no longer resonating with with, with these um, Haitian American communities anymore, um, because of these actions. Your symbolism is no longer working.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Albert, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc i'm your host sean blackman here with jackie lukeman and as always we are your guide for connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us And today we're discussing the latest surrounding the Iran nuclear deal, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Syed Mohammed Morandi, professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. Dr. Morandi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. And, Doctor, uh, the Iranian government is defending its response to a recent uh, uh, resolution passed by the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, that was um, against uh, the nuclear energy program of Iran uh, with uh, the Tehran government describing the response as, quote, decisive and appropriate. And I'm speaking specifically about uh, comments made recently by uh, Iranian foreign ministry spokesman, Saeed Khatib uh, Zadeh, um, who was uh, basically mentioning, and I know a part of the issue is what what Iran claims is uh, faulty intelligence uh, uh, around their uh, uh, nuclear program, saying, quote, we could not leave the IAEA's political and non-technical action unanswered. Our response was decisive and appropriate. And so I was hoping you could tell us more, doctor, about this resolution by the IAEA and how it factors into the broader issue of uh, the Joint Comprehension Plan of Action, otherwise known as the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal?
2: Well, first I have to point out that in the last 20 years, since Iran and the United States and the Europeans they, uh, had this standoff over the Iranian nuclear program, Uh, Whenever relations between Iran and Western countries became more difficult, the IAEA became more aggressive. Whenever tensions decreased, the IAEA became less aggressive. So the IAEA is a political tool used by Western countries. They have enormous influence over the body Western countries form a, a large segment of the organization. The organization is situa- situated in Europe. And therefore, uh, it is not a simply some technical body that just does its work as technocrats, technocrats and that's it. it. That's not how it works. So, when Iran and the United States signed the nuclear deal, we saw the IAA was fine with the Iranian program. Now suddenly that the negotiations, and we have, we had the ups and downs. And now because the United States and Iran have not come to a final agreement, we see that the IAA is getting more aggressive towards Iran. So the IAA is a tool when Iran knows that Iran uh, recognizes that and it deals with it in that context. So why am i saying this because the iranian one of the issues that the iranians say must be resolved in the uh, in order for the jcpoa to be implemented again is the issue of the iaea. In other words the, the international atomic energy agency cannot be used as a tool so that like 3 months after the deal is let's say, implemented, the United States, in order to put pressure on Iran, doesn't use the IAEA to increase, increase tensions. Iran is saying that if we're going to have a deal, then that deal has to be comprehensive. There shouldn't be any means for the United States to, to, to use to cheat on Iran or to put pressure on Iran or vice versa. So that's, that's issue number one. The, the second issue is, uh, I think quite evident for your, uh, listeners. And that is that right before the meeting of the, um, I, of the International Atomic Energy Agency, the Board of Governors, the IAA chief went to Israel. He went to Palestine and he met the Israeli prime minister. And, uh, which was completely irrelevant to the situation. The Israeli regime has assassinated Iranians. It has, it carries out, uh, sabotage, uh, uh, with, of course, the help of Western intelligence agencies and, and terrorist groups such as the MK in Iran. And, uh... Right, and and of course, the Israeli regime has a secret nuclear weapons program. It has nuclear weapons, and so immediately before the meeting where this declaration was uh, put to was put forward by the Europeans and supported by the Americans and the Canadians, he traveled to to to, uh, to, to Palestine. So it was obvious that this was an escalation. This was intended, the intention was to use this, the International Atomic Energy Agency, to put pressure on Iran. This was an escalation, and it was a miscalculation. Why? Because the Iranians warned the Americans that if they use this uh, meeting, the board of directors meeting, to put pressure on Iran, Iran is going to uh, escalate. Uh, The Americans calculated and based on from the Iranian understanding, uh, uh, advice from so-called Iran experts, some of their allies inside Iran and some uh, in in the United States, in, uh, as well, we're telling them that, them that if you put pressure on the Iranian, uh, the the current Iranian administration, they will back down which I found to be extraordinary because the exact it was obvious that the exact opposite would happen. So instead of the Americans trying to resolve the remaining differences with Iran, they thought that through an escalation, they could push Iran to relinquish its rights and to accept a bad deal. And as I said, the opposite happened. When the Americans and the Europeans put forward this new resolution, the Iranians said, okay, we're no longer going to cooperate. So the Iranians shut down or turned off the cameras that were not a part of the NPT. The Iranians had no international obligation to have these cameras. Uh, The Iranians uh, allowed those cameras to exist because Iran was doing more than its... um, than it's required to within the framework of international law uh, in, in, in within the context of the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, and they kept the cameras even though they weren't giving the pictures to the IAEA in, in case the issue were to be resolved. The cameras were still taking pictures, and if the issue was resolved, they would hand over these pictures that were being taken to the IAA. But now they just shut them off. They say, okay, we're not going to uh, give them these pictures anymore. Why? Because the Europeans escalated, and the Iranians felt that the only way forward is to escalate themselves. So the Iranians are going to increase uh, uh, enriching uranium. They're going to increase the scope of their centrifuge uh, capabilities and they're going to decrease the ability of the International Atomic Energy Agency to monitor. So by foolishly traveling to Palestine, the IAEA chief has escalated the situation. Of course, he does not do these things on his own. Uh, The Americans pushed him that direction. So this is where things stand. The Iranians know that the Americans are not in a position to escalate any further because of the global situation, because of Ukraine, because of the price of energy, because of the many problems that Western countries are now facing, they are in absolutely, uh, they're in a very difficult position. They're in absolutely no position to create a new crisis in West Asia. So the Iranians escalated to teach them a lesson it's up to the Americans. If the Americans want a deal, they have to resolve the remaining issues with Iran, which includes the IAEA and this latest uh, chapter, this escalation that was brought about by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Point uh, is actually reinforces the Iranian argument that this too has to be resolved, so that in future, uh, the Americans cannot manufacture another crisis through this body.
0: Yeah. And this also makes me wonder, Dr. Mirandi, because I mean, as ever, it appears as though Washington is really the, the main entity that is holding up real progress on uh, the JCPOA. But what is Iran's relationship like and what have um, the conversations been like with some of the other uh, party countries to the JCPOA, like Germany, Russia, China, France, Britain? I mean, what are those dynamics looking like?
2: Well, the Chinese and the Russians agree with the Iranian position, and they voted against this resolution in the International Atomic Energy Agency, and they are dissatisfied with the behavior of the United States. The Europeans, they know that they need a deal, and they want a deal, but the Europeans don't have any sovereignty. They have basically... Um, forsaken their sovereignty and handed over the realms of uh, the 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 the, uh, um, the let's say the the, the guiding uh, of their foreign policy to the U- the United States, and so uh, the United States guides European foreign policy, and uh, we see that, of course, in Ukraine as well. But with regards to Iran, it's the same. Uh, they are not really important. And it's it's quite extraordinary that the Europeans, how unimportant they have become and how um, they can be pushed around so easily by the Americans. But the problem is not in Paris or in Berlin or in London. The problem is in Washington. If the Americans decide to, uh, to accept the... Iranian conditions that are necessary for the full implementation of the deal, and that is basically to give reasonable assurances that if the Americans, you know, pull out again that uh, those, those individuals, those entities who invest in Iran during the period when the Americans are part of the deal, that, they are, that their assets will not be at risk. That's, that's, that's the Iranian requirement. Uh, that there are that if the Americans pull out again, those people who invest in Iran during the American um, the American period when the Americans implement the deal, that their assets are secure, and this is not a strange uh, requirement from Iran, but apparently for the Americans everything is uh, uh, is everything is is difficult. They the, the Americans, you know, the, the, their position is that. Uh, you have to fully implement your side of the bargain, but we really shouldn't have all that many commitments to make.
1: Yeah, everything in America really is difficult when it comes to policies that come out of Washington, and particularly for the Biden administration, Dr. Morandi, because this I think, is just yet another, yet another black mark on the Biden uh, legacy, on Biden's first two years in office, where he said that he would do everything he could to revive the JCPOA, but he clearly is not. So, you know, what is the the mood in Tehran about Biden's uh, ability to do anything different from what Trump did, certainly? or or to do anything different in regard to uh, honoring exactly, as you said, Iran's legitimate uh, uh, requirements in reviving this deal? Well, the Iranians
2: from the very beginning, uh, they uh, recognize that Biden is not serious. When he came to power, he did not remove any of the sanctions that Trump imposed through presidential decree. So he continued with maximum pressure, even though during the campaign, he said otherwise. And um, later on when he negotiated, um, he basically wanted Iran to go back to the deal and the United States to keep the sanctions. That's very mm, much what happened. So the three months of negotiations that we saw in Vienna, where I was, which I was a part of, I was involved in the talks. I was in Vienna. I, we spoke when I was in Vienna together. That that was the problem. The Americans, the, the Iranians, kept having to force the Americans to um, to uh, abide by. Uh, commitment after commitment in order for progress to be made. And the Americans kept dragging their feet, hoping that they wouldn't have to sign on to anything that that would obligate them to uh, abide in full uh, with the nuclear deal. They Again, they wanted Iran to sign up to the deal, to implement the deal, and the Americans to be able to do whatever they want. So uh, Biden has shown himself to be insincere and weak because right now the problem is that the Americans can—the deal is doable. We're not far from the deal. If the issue of assurances, which I alluded to earlier, is solved, and if uh, the, the sanctions list uh, the, is, is dealt with in an appropriate manner, then we have a deal. But the Americans thought that maybe if they used the IAEA as a, as a weapon, that they could get what they wanted and that the Iranians would back down and end these demands. But the exact opposite happened. The Americans only made it more complicated. And they proved to Iran that the IAEA is a tool. And the, the most foolish thing possible was for the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency to go to Israel right before the, uh, the board meeting it's it was obvious. it was a he was you know he was a slapping not he he wasn't just an insult to the government. It was an insult to the whole of the Iranian people. right after the Iranian citizens were assassinated, uh, you know, family men were murdered and then he goes to to uh, with the Israeli prime minister and laughs and and you know right before the board meeting, what you know a regime that has nuclear weapons, an apartheid regime that Iran doesn't accept. Uh, because of its uh, racial hierarchy, it, it was obvious what he was trying to do. Uh, he was trying to anger the Iranians. He was trying to insult the Iranians, and he was doing it at the beh- behest of the United States. So uh, this itself m- m- showed ordinary Iranians that, uh, and the Iranian government that the the issue not not only should the nuclear deal be resolved, but Iran's differences with the iaa has have also must also be resolved so what biden did basically was he strengthened iran's negotiating position because on the one hand the iranians escalated but on the other hand but in addition to that the iranians are also saying look this is an issue that has to be resolved we can't take this lightly because if we signed up to the deal and then three months later the the israelis make some sort of silly accusation and then the iaa Goes into uh, uh, some sort of aggressive mode again, then you know we're I think we're going to have another crisis. So um, Biden hurt himself through uh, in in this uh, in this process. So the Iranians are saying we're going to wait and see. We're going to escalate. We're going to uh, decrease the monitoring capabilities of the International Atomic Energy Agency. We're going to expand our peaceful nuclear program. And we are going to be very assertive with regards to our demands, both uh, with regards to the implementation of the nuclear deal, but also with regards to the differences between the Iran and the
0: IAEA. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Mirandi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us
2: by any means necessary.
0: Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the plight of... Venezuelan diplomat, Alex Saab, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dan Kabalik, an adjunct professor of international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law and the author of No More War, How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me absolutely. And Dan, uh, former U.S. Defense Secretary Mark Esper has uh, recently released a memoir entitled Sacred Oath. And within it, he seems to uh, perhaps unwittingly make some uh, revelations about uh, uh, the whole issue surrounding the, uh, frankly, illegal arrest and detainment of uh, Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab. And I was hoping that, uh, now Not only could you sort of break down what is revealed uh, in Esper's books, but perhaps uh, it would be best to start off with kind of a reminder for folks who may not be aware of uh, just who Alex Saab is and what's been happening with him lately.
4: Yes. So Alex Saab is a Colombian national, uh, but he became a diplomat for Venezuela. He was a special envoy for President Nicolas Maduro. And the main thing he did for, uh, for Venezuela was to uh, help obtain uh, food, medicine, other humanitarian items for Venezuela in the face of sanctions that make it very hard, U.S. sanctions that make it very hard for Venezuela to obtain such things. He was on a, a diplomatic and humanitarian mission to Iran— Uh, to try to obtain food and medicine. When his plane was forced to land in Cabo Verde, which is an island nation off the coast of Africa, he tried to land in both uh, Morocco and Senegal, which are on the mainland, uh, but they refused uh, his attempt to land and refuel there. Uh, it came to light because the U.S. pressured them not to let him land. They wanted him to land in Cabo Verde, which he did. And as soon as he his plane touched the ground, he was arrested and told that the U.S. wanted to extradite him, even though Cabo Verde has no extradition treaty with the U.S. He ended up being held in Cabo Verde for over a year. Under difficult circumstances, uh, he had uh, cancer at the time, and he's denied cancer medicine, um, and lived under conditions which he was claimed, you know, amounted to torture for that year. And then um, it was interesting: a new president uh, was elected in Cabo Verde, uh, who was a sol- who is a socialist, and promised to actually uh, not extradite. Uh, Saw to the US. And so just before, just around the election, I think it was just before just after he, that president was elected, the US simply kidnapped Saab and brought him to the US where he's now in jail. He's been in jail in Miami uh, now for about a year. So he's been held for about two years. And the main Well, there's a number of issues, obviously. There's now been uh, three international bodies, a U.N. body and two African bodies, which have found that the arrest and extradition of Saab are illegal. And it, they're illegal for a number of reasons. One, while the U.S. claimed there was an Interpol red notice, uh, uh, which was a, essentially an international warrant for his arrest when he was arrested, that was not true. A red notice wasn't uh, issued till a day after he was arrested in Cabo Verde. As I mentioned, there's no extradition treaty between Cabo Verde and the United States. Uh, and moreover, he at the time was was a diplomat, uh, flying with a diplomatic uh, passport. So he had diplomatic immunity, which is a big issue in the case he has before the U.S., which brings us to the Mark Esper book where he admits that a number of people in the U.S. government at the time were very well aware that uh, not only was uh, Saab a diplomat for Venezuela, but that he was in fact on a diplomatic and humanitarian mission at the time he was arrested. So this is a huge admission because this is a big defense that his legal team is making um, to the charges against him in Miami.
1: And I think at the foundation of uh, the case, this trumped up case, uh, pun intended, against Alex Saab was the the uh, attempt by the Trump administration in particular to find out how Saab was able to uh, obtain food and medicine for Venezuela, despite the sanctions against the country, which are, again, illegal and, and sanctions are an act of war. So is Saab's, uh, the pursuit of Saab now continuing on under the Biden administration, really not just an attempt to, uh, to, to criminalize him, but really to find out who else is uh, doing business with Venezuela to get around these sanctions so that the U.S. government can in turn go after them?
4: Yes. And in fact, a number of U.S. officials have been quoted in various papers saying exactly that, that the goal, I believe there's a New York Times article, for example, that you know, quoted U.S. officials as saying that they are after Saab to find out, as you say, how he was circumnavigating sanctions to get food and medicine, uh, to Venezuela. And so they want to find out, as you say, How he was doing it, who he was doing it with, and they want to disrupt that. They want to disrupt uh, Venezuela's ability to trade and to get food and medicine, uh, which is insane, right? And we know um, from various reports from the Center for Economic Policy, uh, research uh, from a couple uh, UN experts like uh, – Desaius, uh, I believe Alex Desaius, um, and another recent one that literally tens of thousands of Venezuelans have died due to uh, U.S. sanctions—forty thousand in one year between 2017 and 2018. So, for example, according to Desaius, I think he was saying this in about 2000. Nineteen, At least by that time, 100,000 Venezuelans had died due to sanctions because of the inability to get medicine and food. So uh, the fact that the U.S. continues to want to prevent Venezuelans from getting life-saving items and uh, is willing to increase the body count in Venezuela is quite disturbing.
0: Well, I definitely agree with that, Dan. And I mean, just... Looking at the overall illegality of what's happening with Alex Saab, I mean, I think two things. Number one, I don't think it's an exaggeration to call what happened to him a kidnapping, given not only its illegal nature, but even the lack of um, extradition treaty between uh, Cape Verde and the United States. And also, it seems clear that this kidnapping of Saab um, is part and parcel of the cruelty of uh, Washington's hybrid war against Venezuela uh, uh, that continues. And so I'm I'm just curious how you sort of see the uh, plight of Alex Saab factoring into this uh, broader issue of the U.S. government's attacks on Venezuela and the Bolivarian revolution.
4: Yeah, well, certainly the Venezuelans themselves see it as that. Uh, They view this as a major issue. Um, In fact, uh, negotiations between Venezuela and the opposition that were being held in Mexico City broke down over. The extradition, or as you say, the kidnapping of Saab, uh, because yeah, the Venezuelans definitely see this attack on Saab, and it really is an attack. He's been in jail now for two years. His hearings, even on you know fairly stri- you know straightforward immunity issues, continue to be delayed. So he's going to sit in jail for a long time uh, away from his family. Um, they see this ill treatment of him as really emblematic of the terrible treatment, humanitarian treatment of Venezuela.
1: Yeah. And, you know, this continues to be uh, uh, an issue with the U.S. government uh, under Biden, uh, even as the uh, book that Mark Esper wrote does reveal the links that the Trump administration went to to ensure that uh, Saab continued to be con- uh, detained on Cabo, Ver- Cabo Verde, going so far as to send the U.S. warship, uh, uh, the, the USS Jacinto, to the coast of Cabo Verde at a cost of per day. Now, I I don't think the Biden administration has gone that far, but the Biden administration does continue to detain uh, Saab illegally uh, uh, holding him. So what are the options for Saab's family, the Venezuelan government, and particularly what has the United Nations said about all of this, uh, uh, you know, ridiculous uh, uh, pursuit Of uh, uh, and and the criminalization of Alex Saab?
4: Yeah, well, as I said, the U.N. Human Rights Commission early on said that uh, it believed that the detention and at that point planned extradition of Saab were illegal, and they actually ordered preliminary measures for him to be released. And, of course, the U.S. simply ignored that. And as I said, the African Commission found the same thing. And there was another court in Africa that found the same thing. So three international bodies so far have said that this is illegal. Um, people in Cabo Verde poll show that this is, his treatment has been horribly unpopular. That's why the incoming president was going to release him. And again, um, flouting that president's authority, the U.S. just simply kidnapped him and took him off uh, the island, meanwhile, you know, it has to be pointed out, of course, that, you know, the U.S. sent this ship, uh, a warship, to the coast of Cabo Verde over Esper's disagreement, by the way. We got fired for disagreeing with Trump over that. Um, they And Trump claimed he did it because he didn't want, you know, Iran or other parties to come in and free saw. But really, it seems to me this was nothing but gun quotes. Gunboat diplomacy to try to cajole Cabo Verde into, you know, giving in to the U.S.'s uh, aims against Saab. Um, but where does this leave us? I mean, I believe if Saab gets any fair hearing on his immunity, diplomatic immunity, claims that he should be released, uh, you know, uh, quickly. Um, I think on the merits of his case, if that's tried, he would also be released. Um, and so he has lawyers that are working on those things. But as I said, there have been delays, which the U.S. government itself has initiated those delays because they don't have a case. And they know that, especially, they have a problem on the issue of his diplomatic immunity. So they're simply delaying this. You know, reminds me of what they're doing, of course, to Julian Assange. Uh, where he, you know, will probably never be tried because there's no case against him. Um, but they're simply keeping him in jail, continuing to delay any trial on on charges. Um, and he's sitting there and rotting. And maybe he'd be just as happy if he sat and, 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 and died in jail. And I think that is the planned uh, fate for for Saab.
0: Yeah, that does seem to be the case. And, you know, in the last couple of minutes, Dan, I just feel like this shows uh, the the general cruelty of uh, U.S. imperialism sort of attacks on Venezuela in, in general in terms of how it's impacting not only Alex Saab, uh, uh, the individual, but also the Venezuelan people as a whole who now will not have those important resources that he was trying to obtain. You know what I mean?
4: Yeah, no, it's, it, it shows the cruelty of U.S. foreign policy here, right? I mean, as you say, They're willing to take this guy who, again, had cancer. He's still recovering from cancer, you know, so he's in difficult straits, being held in prison, away from his family. Um, And, again, that's just one example of how they treat all the Venezuelan people, willing for tens of thousands of Venezuelans to to starve, to die from preventable disease because they can't get the medicine, they can't get... Um, important equipment like dialysis equipment, for example, um, to survive. Uh, and, yeah, I think that people should be horrified by this. And I think what also is horrifying is that this has gotten very little coverage in the media. I don't think many people know the name of Alex Saab, um, but they should. They, they should be horrified by this. And also they should be horrified because, you know, when you treat other people's diplomats like this, you're going to open up your own diplomats to this sort of treatment, right? I mean, that's the reason we have international laws and conventions. Not because we're nice guys, but because, frankly, we hope our own people are treated properly by other countries, you know? And that's a danger in, in, in what we're doing here.
0: Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc i'm your host sean blackman here with jackie lukeman and as always we are your guide for connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us oh yes we're here we're back top of the hour it is monday june 13th 2022 And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us.
1: That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington. D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen on your radio dial live at 105.5 FM and 139 a.m. in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure live on Rumble right now. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world, and however you do it, we want to hear from
0: We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, today is the 42nd anniversary of the assassination of Guyanese revolutionary intellectual theorist, Pan-Africanist and scholar activist Walter Rodney, one of the most impactful and consequential minds of the 20th century. Now, he died after attempting to use a walkie talkie that unbeknownst to him was laden with explosives. Uh, The Guyanese government uh, framed and unlawfully convicted his brother, Donald Rodney, uh, for um, Walter's death in 1982. And Donald would not be exonerated until twenty twenty one. 40 years after his wrongful conviction. Rodney, of course, authored several books, including classics such as Groundings with My Brothers and his magnum opus, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And my friends, if you're serious about understanding imperialism, if you're serious about understanding pedagogy and political education, then you must be serious about studying our comrade Walter Rodney. Also, uh, at the top of the hour today, uh, Bolivian coup president Janine Anez has been sentenced to 10 years in prison following a trial. Um, there are actually videos from our friends at uh, Calcichun News who were on the ground during the trial showing people outside the courtroom furious, you know, feeling like Anez got off light for all the crimes she committed against the Bolivian people during her time as uh, uh, a completely illegitimate coup president with the support of the United States. And I must say, It is hard to disagree with them, Uh, but be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Eleanor Goldfield, a creative activist, journalist, co-host of Project Censored and the filmmaker behind the documentary Hard Road of Hope. Eleanor, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here
0: absolutely and it's great to have you eleanor and you know eleanor um this past weekend was the um capital pride parade here in washington dc this is the first uh weekend of real pride events since the onset of uh covid-19 i had the opportunity to be there actually jackie did as well and uh it was a lot of fun had a great time as always and you know an interesting thing that i feel like we see um M. pride, certainly today, is uh, the kind of corporatization of pride, uh, if you will. And I mean, just in the D.C. pride, I mean, I saw, you know, floats and contingents for, uh, you know, contractors like Latos, which I hadn't even heard of uh, before that day, uh, defense companies like Northrop Grumman, uh, McDonald's had a double-decker bus that said, like, it said live in my truth with a with an apostrophe like I'm loving it. Live in my truth with a, a, a rainbow heart. Um, Marriott Hotels had a float and they had security guards like I saw them. They had two security guards wearing sunglasses, looking very serious, standing outside of their float. I don't know what they thought people were going to do to that float, but they were not about to risk it. Um, There were different banks, Deloitte, Lockheed Martin, you know, the the list goes on and on and on. And of course, this is interspersed in throughout the, uh, you know, different community uh, uh, groups and uh, activist groups, you know, and things like that. There were even, you know, uh, uh, there was a radical and and socialist contingent and things like that. But uh, generally speaking, I feel like it's kind of a representation like a lot of things with the, a deep revolutionary history of pride, where we see these corporate interests uh, uh, try to slither in and crank out a buck from this community of uh, oppressed people. And, you know, I'm just sort of wondering how you're how that's sort of striking you, particularly in a moment like this, where the LGBTQ community is in serious danger. I mean, they're already an oppressed press group uh, under capitalism. And you could argue that they're basically always in danger. But what we're dealing with in this moment is a, uh, a pronounced, excuse me, right wing transphobic smear campaign against a trans people. We're seeing people being attacked. Trans kids are being targeted by legislation. And so looking at this. And uh, uh, sort of seeing how the issues with this community are playing out right now. And, you know, I think I should also add how liberals, the Democrats, are refusing to fight for this community. Like, how does the sort of uh, uh, corporate nature of a lot of pride events we see, how does it strike you, uh, Eleanor?
5: Yeah, Sean, I mean, as a human being, I'm disgusted. As a queer human being, I am uh, uh, disgusted squared. Um, I mean, and 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 i think you made a good point that i want to touch on uh, to start with that the liberals aren't doing anything to to address this and that's because their their you know safe space in terms of lgbtq is the white cis gay man Right, that's like their safe space, or you know, Dick Cheney's daughter, or something like that. That's that's where they feel comfortable. Like, okay, I don't want to think about it. I don't, I, 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 I don't want to uh, to really talk about it. But I guess it's okay that you exist in the world. But when it gets into, you know, uh, things like uh, trans rights, when it gets into the plus, which uh, you know, you, so, folks might sometimes see LGBTQIA2S plus or Two Spirit, you know that's... That's, that's a part of this this issue as well. When it gets into particularly trans and queer folks that are BIPOC, black, indigenous people of color, <laughs> that's where the Democrats get off that train real fast. And that's, of course, where all of these corporations would get off that train as well, because let's take, for instance, and I covered this a few years ago, Lockheed Martin has a portion of their business called pride like it's literally the the acronym is pride wow. uh, it's the pride business resource group and you can go to their website it's you know lockheedmartin.com and then they have this page with uh, an atrocious uh, you know rainbow collection with with their uh, with their logo on top of it and talking about how they've been celebrating pride for 16 years and oh isn't it great and of course they're not talking about how they are a weapons contractor that is is based on bombing and maiming people uh, that are others. And in in terms of the the American Empire that includes LGBTQ fa- LGBTQ folks that are predominantly people of color, black and brown folks right? I mean, we're we're uh, allies with Saudi Arabia, who beheads people for being gay, right? And Lockheed Martin is like, happy Pride, everyone. Uh, and I think that, you know, the other part of this, you know, you're talking about how there were Pride celebrations in DC. And I'm sure for for folks who are well versed at trying to look where cops are, they'd notice that there are always a lot of cops at these events, right? They're they're making sure that, uh, oh, this float's going to go there. And this, per-, you know, this is your route or whatever. Uh, and I think it's also important to Note in terms of the history of Pride, Pride started as a riot, and that has become kind of a cliche—just, you know, something that you say when you cheers your glasses. But that's an important thing to really remember and to bring up this history—that not only was Pride started because of police violence, but it was started because trans and queer people of color, uh, Latinx and Black, uh, trans and queer folks. Basically, stood up and said, "No more. You can, you don't get to treat us like this anymore." And this was, you know, what we in the United States uh, hear about the Stonewall Inn, the Stonewall riots. The Stonewall Inn was one of these safe places that queer and trans folks, particularly youth, had to go. And the police raided it frequently. And then there was just one night. You know, we we see these tipping points throughout history, where again, predominantly black and Latinx uh, queer and trans folks said, "No more. Not today." And that is specifically like this instance in history is specifically anti-police because the police were the aggressors. They are the aggressors in these communities, in LGBT communities, in black and brown communities. They are the aggressors and they always have been. And pride initially uh, in this in this moment, which was in June, which is why we celebrate uh, pride specifically in June, was about pushing back against the empire and against this violent arm of the empire, which is the police. And the people, these activists, you know, Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, Ms. Major, Ms. Major Griffin Gracie, were very clear about these intersections of black and trans and queer and poor and Latinx and being anti-war and uh, being feminist. They were very clear about all of these intersections. And that is obviously not something that you're going to see Uh, that's highlighted by You know, the corporations, Amazon is not going to have a flyer up there that says defund the police along with pride. But really, if we're talking about legitimately queer liberation, gay liberation, then we cannot talk about that without also talking about defunding the police, uh, without talking about abolition, without talking about Black Lives Matter uh, and, you know, trans rights as human rights. These are all things that are intersected in this movement that completely are whitewashed and pulled away from the corporatization of pride, which is really not pride at all.
1: Yeah. And, you know, this this issue of the corporate uh, sponsorship of pride has been a problem with Capital Pride, I know, for several years. But I'm sure with Pride celebrations across the country, like I, I remember in 2017, the, uh, the a group called No Justice, No Pride actually blocked the Pride parade because they did not like the fact that there were uh, corporate sponsors like Lockheed Martin. And I think Lockheed Martin was actually one of the uh, uh, biggest uh, sponsors that they were targeting. And, and they were trying to raise... You know the contradiction that we're we're talking about right now, where uh, Angela Peoples of the LGBTQ activist group Get Equal said at the time, "What does it say when the gay community takes money from from corporations that cheats marginalized communities?" I mean, I I can't help that as we are seeing. The LGBTQ plus communities continuing to have to face uh, attacks on the legislative front in certain states where these horrible, discriminatory, hateful anti-trans bills that are being uh, introduced and passed that, uh, you know, discriminate against and criminalize children. I mean, we're also seeing this very uh, insidious corporate, uh, the corporatization of pride. But it's just it's it just feels so much like the way corporations have taken over every other expression of of celebration of overcoming obstacles that every other group of people has experienced. Right. Like because we're, we're just about to have the issues with Juneteenth. And, uh, you know, the great value Juneteenth ice cream and and the cops showing up recruiting at Juneteenth events and and that kind of thing. So, I mean, this is, I think, the way the corporate world gets uh, uh, insinuated into people's struggles is so insidious, but it's also very consistent across the board, Eleanor, and, and I think it is deeply tied to this thing called capitalism that we all recognize is the root of all our problems, but I don't think we recognize how capitalism wheedles its way into people's struggle for equality and liberation.
5: Absolutely, Jackie. I think that's a very important connection to make. And I'm so I'm so glad that you mentioned Juneteenth as well, because we celebrate pride. And of course, Juneteenth is is also in June. And these are considered to be disparate celebrations and not connected. And they're oftentimes just separated like, oh, this is just for those folks. This is just for those folks. Uh, But you know, I, I'm not going to do it justice, but uh, but but there's a quote about how you know I can't make I can't piece myself into the various identities that the system wants me to be. I am all of myself, and that includes all of these intersections. And yes, I mean, there, especially for uh, for so many in the LGBT community, for so many folks in uh, in the Black community are th- these are not two separate uh two separate celebrations of liberation they are part of the same human being that requires liberation to live uh, in a just society which cannot happen under capitalism and people oftentimes talk about the democrats like oh that's where movements go to die but i think it's even deeper than that you know capitalism is where movements become You know they become twisted and 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 uh, and and completely uh, voided of any kind of depth and any kind of meaning. They become just the flat pride flag. They become the painting of Black Lives Matter on a street. They become something shallow and flimsy. When in reality, the call that was that that first birthed these 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 flags and these uh, you know the Black Lives Matter call are come from deep and deeply rooted demands for justice and demands for freedom that are older even than the United States, of course. And, the fact that capitalism can create them, can turn them into something that is completely flat and flimsy and lifeless, really just speaks to this gravity of capitalism. The fact that it can just, uh, you know, suck the life out of not just human beings, but of our ideas, of our pushes to realize ourselves and to realize justice and freedom and liberation, and that is terrifying. Uh, but it is also, uh, you know, heartening in the sense, Jackie, that that we can notice this. And stop it, like you, like you said. Like p- perhaps sometimes even with our bodies, block parades and say no. This is this is what's happening. And we as queer folks, or you know whatever the case may be, we as uh, we as these people are not going to allow you to turn our demands for freedom into something flat and flimsy and lifeless. Uh, and 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 you don't get to use it as an excuse to uh, to to force people to vote for you next cycle. And I think that those connections are really important. And I do feel heartened that more folks, uh, particularly younger queer folks and younger folks in the LGBTQ community are realizing this and they feel grossed out by the capitalization and the commercialization of their identity because that is disgusting. There is something inherently inhumane uh, when you feel that your your own identity, yourself is being sold on Amazon, you know, along with toothbrushes and, and, and wolf urine. Uh, and I think that uh, there are a lot of people that are recognizing this and pushing for uh, pushing for something deeper and a better understanding of what pride really means.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, speaking of pride, I wanted to say if, if folks notice that um, I sound a little off today, or if I sound a little hoarse, it's because I was chanting for hours on end at pride uh, on <laughs> that day. So I'm, I'm going to ask that uh, you forgive me if, if I don't sound quite as dynamic as I normally might. But, yeah, it's so important to <clears throat> sort of you know have that focus and to have an emphasis really on the revolutionary history of pride and what actually goes into it. And you're absolutely correct, Eleanor, when you talk about how, you know, pride, it, it, it emerged uh, as a struggle against racist police terror, against white supremacy, certainly against uh, homophobia, transphobia and uh, uh, misogyny, whether we're talking about Stonewall, whether we're talking about Cooper Donuts, whether we're talking about uh, uh, Compton's Cafe, they all have uh, uh, these same kinds of elements. And even if we look at the names of uh, some of the groups at this time, I mean, they had names like the Gay Liberation Front, you know, taking inspiration from um, uh, uh, the struggle in Vietnam or or STAR, you know, uh, uh, the street transvestite action revolutionaries, although, you know, we wouldn't use that language today, but that was the language of that time. And we had these people like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and these uh, uh, revolutionary people who were not only sort of uh, uh, pushing back against the homophobia and transphobia of the broader society and under capitalism, but even grappling with those contradictions within their own communities. And so, you know, I I think that we should really uh, uh, make a deep study of what went into uh, uh, the roots of pride. And I think what we'll find is is something really quite different in terms of its substance from what we see today. But I want to talk more about this. And we come back after our first break here on by any means necessary on radio spreading in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Uh, pro tip, don't try to eat a lozenge and do a radio show at the same time. But phone uh, lines are still uh, are uh, open. 202-521-1320, that's two. 025211320. Myself and Jackie Lucmont continue to be joined by Eleanor Goldfield. And Eleanor, you know, it's funny, you mentioned that um, you know, this month, June, is not only Pride Month, of course, it's also uh Juneteenth. And we were talking not long ago on the show about uh, the the kind of uproar that happened because uh Great Value, the store brand of Walmart, had a Juneteenth ice cream, but there's a pride ice cream as well. They also had a great value pride ice cream. Um, I'm looking at a picture here. It appears to be white chocolate flavored ice cream with brownies and cherries. So, you know, there's that. But I think I actually found my favorite corporate pride product. This is amazing to me. And I had no clue. It was even a thing until I saw it today when I was uh, looking into it, preparing for the hour today, Eleanor Burger King had a had a pride whopper what makes it a pride whopper you ask because it has quote two equal buns now what what makes the buns equal they're gonna give you your hamburger with either two top buns or two bottom buns i'm telling you i'm looking right at it and it says time to be proud now, not only is that dumb, uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with pride. I don't know if they're trying to do a take on like dare to be different or, or born this way or what. But it's 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 amazingly bad and and pretty great here um, at the same time. And, you know, the interesting thing, I had an interesting experience when I was at pride this past weekend because um, I, I was a part of the socialist contingent and the people just seemed very, very receptive to a radical political message. They appreciated um, uh, raising the the revolutionary history, you know, with Marsh Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and them, and all those sorts of things. But I swear, when when it was mentioned about how you know pride doesn't have anything to do with these uh, uh, weapons developers and these uh, defense contractors and things like that, I mean, the people just exploded. And then one of the announcers, you know how they have the, the the people who kind of stand on the side and announce the contingents as they go by. Well, when we are announced, uh, one of the guys was like, yeah, F capitalism. And then they cheered again. I was like, yo, this crowd is something else. So even with the sort of corporatization um, of pride that we see this kind of cynical cash grab. You know, we see the same thing in Black History Month, see the same thing with, with other um, holidays in in this country. You know what I mean? There, there still seems to definitely be a kind of energy and a kind of desire for real struggle. I mean, there was more fight back in that parade uh, around LGBTQ liberation than there is in the entirety of the institution of the Democratic Party, which we're told is this progressive party that's supposed to uh, uh, advocate for uh uh these same poor working and oppressed folks you know what i mean and this is why i think it's important for uh you know if you consider yourself a progressive or revolutionary or socialist communist i think that's why it's important to actually involve yourself in these actions despite uh the corporate character of it you know what i mean because this is how you bring that messaging and those politics directly to the people who were very, very receptive. You know what I mean? And so I feel like there's a real um, opportunity there for movement building, uh, particularly in this moment, because I think people recognize that they're not being protected. Not only are they not being protected in many ways, they're actively being thrown under the bus and given the attacks Excuse me. Given the attacks on the community uh, right now, Eleanor, it really seems like that movement building aspect of things is going to be so important as uh, conditions continue to intensify here in the U.S.
5: Yeah, absolutely, Sean. And I mean, if we were to if we were to w- walk away from every movement that the Democrats ruin, I, I, we would just be sitting here and doing nothing. <laughs> uh, in that case, we, you know, we'd be walking away from Black Lives Matter. We'd be walking away from uh, from organizing in the workplace, uh, from indigenous rights, from, you know, stopping climate chaos. I mean, there would be nothing left. Ah, uh, because be and that's really the goal, of course, right? is it's the goal to bring people who are radical and feel the deep desire to change uh, into the fold and get them to sit down and be quiet and stop. And then the machine can just roll on uninhibited and literally use those people as grease on the wheels. And, I, you know I think it's so important perhaps more important to engage in movements that are being co-opted uh, because we have to take those back we have to demand we have to show the distinction you know I oftentimes use the 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 example as like you know, we have really have to make the distinction between Israel and Jews because they're ruining it <laughs> and uh, and we have to make the distinction between the Democrats and liberation. Because they're ruining it. They're ruining the word of justice and the word of liberation. Uh, and we have to take that back. We can't allow them to destroy those words and turn them again into these flat and flimsy, shallow uh, and soulless words that mean nothing. We have to take those back. Uh, and I think that, again, you know, the, the Burger King thing, which I there's just so much I can't even. Um, yeah, but like, I think it's getting too overt and it reminds me a little bit, several years ago, uh, the Susan G. Komen Foundation literally came out. They partnered with a fracking company and made a pink fracking bit. I'm not kidding. Uh, and literally, the tagline was doing our bit for the cure. Wow. Uh, and just, you know, completely glossing over the fact that fracking causes cancer. Um but this was I mean, they even got they even got, uh, you know, pushback from major news outlets like the New York Times and things like this. Like it was just it's getting too obvious. Right. And so I think people are naturally feeling this pushback because it just doesn't it it, it feels a little too much. You know, for instance, like the U.S. Navy launching a ship named for Harvey Milk. It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, thanks. I'm sure he'd want to be he'd want to have his name attached to something that whose whose who's job is to, uh, you know, to 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 kill people and uh, in particular people who are uh, who are more oppressed than than your average American. So I think like it's really just it, it's getting too obvious. Uh, and I do think, you know, like you said, Sean, it is in these moments more important than ever to really ensure that we have these protests, that we have these moments where we come together and we show that no, this is not what Pride is about. Pride is about revolutionary and radical demands for justice that do not have to do with voting our way to uh, to freedom. It has to do with organizing and toppling empire, which will, which will end with the liberation of not just LGBTQ folks, but all of the inter Intersections that represent LGBTQ folks, whether that's, you know, women, fems, uh, masculine folks, uh, you know, black folks, indigenous folks, cis folks, I mean, everybody, uh, and re- recognizing those intersections and how those are what is ra- revolutionary, that's what's radical. And that's nothing that you can find in the Democrats. That's nothing that you can find in a, a Burger King double bun or whatever that, <laughs> that was. This is something that you find in the streets in organizing inside your community. Uh, and I think that, you know, this month in particular is a great time to highlight that, whether that's through Juneteenth or El- or Pride, uh, and of course the intersections between those.
0: Yeah, definitely. And that was actually a, a chant that um, uh, we had this weekend, you know, uh, a trans, cis, straight, gay fight together every day. And uh, we have a caller on the line here. Terry, tell us what's on your mind.
6: Good afternoon. Uh, What's on my mind is, that's a mixture of things. Um, But, you know, it saddens me when I hear, you know, it seems like the people at the bottom or the people who are on the margins are always, always trying to fight this huge power. And I just um, don't understand why is it that the pride people didn't combine with the original uh, Rainbow Push Coalition? Um, you know, if you can remember that it was like a social justice from the Southern Christian Leadership, Jesse Jackson, and and all of that. Why didn't they combine with the poor people? And you know, we could be stronger. Um, because I don't think that the poor people, they are, a lot of them are rich people who are in the, in, 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 um, you know, these various, um, LGBT, whatever, but some are rich and some are poor. But I think that the bottom, the bottom masses are, are, are really, I just don't see why we can't come together. I am a part of the S group. I'm a straight person. So. Why can't we all come together? The Rainbow Push um, organization had it right. If you want the radical part, I think that the—I think this group, the new people here, have thrown away the radical part. The radical part was— um improving the plight of the black community that's what the rainbow push was about in the beginning i don't know if you were born uh at that time but you know it was the operation bread basket you know i mean it was just really strong and the people were striving and then our the name rainbow got taken away but all of the hard work disappeared and and then it became something else so i'll listen for the answer off the air unless you want me to respond
0: all right, well thanks a lot. I appreciate you calling in. Um I'm not, I'm not clear uh what the the connection is between Jesse Jackson's uh, Rainbow Push Coalition and pride. But but I mean I still take your point in a sense. I mean, one thing I can say is that I mean, in my experience pride is for everybody. I mean, it's certainly not exclusive to uh straight people or anything like that. But I think it's helpful to think about it in terms of class. I think this is what you were getting at because I don't you know, I, I don't think it's Frankly, uh, all that useful to, you know, to uh, think about it in terms of who, you know, the, the leading people organizing with are, are really uh, uh, dealing with or in a uh, conversation with or, or who's, you know, funding these parades and things like that, because, you know, we know what that's about, just like how we're discussing the corporatization of pride itself. I think it's more helpful and I, and I believe this is what you're getting at is to look at the class character of the uh, LGBTQ community, which to me is completely different than the class character of uh, the corporations who are trying to infringe on something that was meant as a liberatory uh, uh, expression. So I think we have to make a distinction between these corporate entities and the masses of people who have been forced to the margins um, under the uh, contradictions and exploitation of the capitalist system because of their gender, because of their sexuality, because of how they. Uh, uh, present and uh, uh, all these sorts of things. But I mean, what you're speaking to, I think, I mean, in terms of how that can be strengthened, I mean, again, I think this is why movement people have to make it a point um, to be involved in these kinds uh, of events. Um, and, you know, there was also I saw a contingent for uh, the, uh, the Poor People's uh, Campaign, who's going to be having a, a mass rally of poor and working people here in D.C. Uh, this coming weekend. You know what I mean? And so, you know, I, I think that this is where our mind should really be when we talk about movement building and understanding that the masses of LGBTQ folk are not uh, one and the same as these corporations who slap on a rainbow so that they can, you know, put a a pretty face on their uh, mega profit-making. But Jackie Luqman, I'm curious your thoughts.
1: Yeah, a couple of things. I I, I want people to remember that... uh Jesse Jackson didn't come up with the Rainbow Coalition, right (laughs) there. They they existed that existed before Jesse Jackson. uh, And that was uh, a result of the work of the Black Panthers, the Young Lords uh, and uh, the uh, Young Patriots uh, out of Chicago. Uh, And they did some incredible work. Uh, So Jesse Jackson repurposed the title. Right. So it's and, and that's fine and and did did some some good work. Uh, but I also want to point out that. The the symbol of the rainbow was not like taken away from radical movements and like stolen by the LGBTQ community and turned into something else. Those those colors mean something specific to each group of people in that community. So, I mean, that that is uh, another point I want to make. And the third thing I want to say is that when you talk to people in the LGBT uh, community who are who are, 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 are focused on class consciousness, who are politically savvy, and who are uh, usually anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist, they'll be the first ones to point out to you the uh, class struggles, Within people in their community, like they will be the first ones to tell you that among people in their community who have uh, who are, are discriminated against and are uh, fired from their jobs, denied housing, it's black, trans and queer people. So. I mean, I I think that sometimes we look at the outside of movements that we think we have that we think are projecting like we're different from you and we have nothing in common with you. But if we listen to what they're saying and if we engage with them, they're usually the ones who are the most eloquent in pointing out the class contradictions that they have to fight within their own community that are exactly the same class struggles that we are fighting. And and they, they make the point for us that they are us. So I, I, I think that the, this, this kind of way of looking at pride and the struggles of LGBTQ people as something separate from the struggles of working class and poor people in this country, I think that is a, an, an, an incorrect and incomplete uh, view of the struggle uh, from both sides, I think, Sean.
0: Yeah, definitely. Eleanor, your thoughts.
5: Yeah, I absolutely agree 100% with what uh, you and Jackie have said, Sean, and and I I think it's also important uh, to point out that you know there's always going to be reasons to to find that demarcate uh, you know whatever your main issue might be from something else and this is part of the, the the design right the design is to keep us in our silos so that we can't be effective because nobody lives a single issue life and therefore focusing on a single issue is never going to get us anywhere it's not going to ever get us closer to liberation. And that's why of course, it's very important to have this, the, a, a class lens on this uh, and also understand, uh, you know, for instance, a, a, an, an intersection here, 40% of homeless youth in the, in the United States identify as LGBTQ. That's a lot. And, you know, these are the intersections that are never going to be highlighted uh, in any official capacity because they show spaces where we can work together. And I think, you know, just listening to this radio show, for instance, I'm white and I'm on the I'm um, I'm on the show with Sean and Jackie, and I identify as queer. And uh, you know I'm not religious. I know that uh, that, that, uh, that 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 the church and organizing in that space is very important to Jackie. Uh, I know that I don't agree with Sean or Jackie on everything in terms of specifics of uh, like political ideologies and things like that. But I would, I can't think of two more rad human beings that I would like to stand on the barricades with, because I know I will have their back and I know that they would have mine. And I know that when it comes to the nitty gritty in terms of what we demand as human rights, what we demand in terms of a livable future, we are on the same page and you can call it Steve if you want to, whatever political idea, I mean, you can call it anything you want and you can come through, you can come to that space through a church door, through a barn door. I don't care. But I think there's always going to be reasons to find why we shouldn't work together. And, oh, you grew up middle class or you grew up poor. You're you're white, you're black, you're indigenous, whatever. There's always going to be reasons to not work together. And of course, it's important to highlight our differences in lived experiences and recognize the difference in these lived experiences under capitalism, under white supremacy, under patriarchy, etc., But at the same time, we have to find the reasons to work together and understand that we are fighting for the same thing. And yeah, you're not always going to be fighting for the same thing. And then you can move away from those people. But in terms of whether LGBTQ folks are fighting for the liberation of poor folks, for the liberation of black folks, absolutely. And if they're not, they're not legit. They are the Lockheed Martin pride people. They are the Burger King, whatever double bund thing that is, and it's again, like we have to separate the legit movements from the movements that are being co-opted and trying to steal our energy and our life and our power from us Uh, and so I think it's always important to highlight these spaces where we are and have to be organizing together
0: Definitely, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us by any means necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. Two zero two five two one one three two zero. That's 2. Zero two five two one one three two zero. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Eleanor Goldfield is here, and Eleanor, uh, making a bit of a uh, uh, pivot here to some international issues. It uh, We know that here recently, both Finland and Sweden um, applied uh, to join NATO uh, uh, in response to the recent invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and their applications uh, have uh, been met with serious criticism from the government of Turkey, of course, under Recep Erdogan, which was angry by what they see as Sweden's uh, support of uh, Kurdish militants. That's, you know, Reuters language, calling them uh, Kurdish militants. Um, Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson has said recently that, you know, Sweden has changed its terrorism laws and was in the process of tightening them up even more, saying, quote, from the 1st of July, we will also have even stronger legislation when it comes to the fight against terrorism. So here there are no questions about how strongly Sweden sees on terrorism and that we are willing to contribute to fight against terrorism terrorism. Uh, Now, Eleanor, you're our resident uh, Sweden critic. Uh, So I'm definitely curious uh, how how this is uh, striking you in this moment as we continue to see uh, Sweden try to make its way into NATO.
5: Yes. Well, if anyone needs a Sweden critic, I'm happy to uh, (laughs) to be that person. Uh, So just in case people are confused because my name does not sound Swedish. I am in fact, Swedish. I'm a Swedish citizen. I spent a lot of time here growing up. I went to school in Sweden, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my mom and her entire family are, are, are still in Sweden. Uh, so it's not like I just read a book about Sweden and I'm now the Sweden, Sweden expert. Um, so, so yeah, so basically, uh, Sweden has and and Finland, although I don't know as much about what's going on in Finland, but I know that Sweden has, uh, has asked to join NATO and I feel in a very odd position because I'm hoping that somehow Erdogan saves the day. And at the same time, I agree with Henry Kissinger who said that he didn't think that Sweden should join NATO. I, all I have to say is that this, this, uh, topsy turvy world that we're in is, is freaking me out. Um, and so basically Sweden has had this had this uh, guise of being neutral I gotta say if the US is looking for a PR person Sweden you can't do better than the Sweden PR campaign because it has this guise of being progressive socialist well, haha uh, and uh, and neutral when in fact Sweden is one of the largest weapons exporters in in the world I think it's actually just second or third after after the US uh, which, you can't be neutral if you make a huge chunk of change off of bombing people. Uh, Sweden has also not been neutral in, in, in the world wars. It hasn't been neutral uh, in terms of NATO either. Uh, NATO has been allowed to do military exercises in Sweden, in particular in northern Sweden, which is, if you look at a map, the closest part of Sweden to Russia. So it's really like Sweden was like, how can we get just that much closer uh, and Sweden has supported NATO um, militarily and in terms of uh, economics. And Sweden has supported the U.S. empire, which, let's be honest, NATO is just really a branch of U.S. empire. Uh, and so really, Sweden has not been neutral at all. Uh, and there are Swedish veterans that fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, and riddle me this, how could that happen in a neutral country, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that the, the guys that Sweden has put forward uh, is, thankfully starting to crumble because of this push to join nato but really all this is doing is pushing us that much closer to not just world war but nuclear war which i i continue to be flabbergasted at how flippant people seem to be about this in fact swedish media has been putting out uh you know stuff that is reminiscent of you know the 1950s in the us like what to do if there's nuclear war and it's like why what what are you doing? Why are you printing this? Why don't you just say, hey, here's how to not push ourselves closer to nuclear war. Don't join NATO. And yet it's kind of like the bulletproof blankets and kids in the US. Uh, We just have to accept that this is a part of life and you're just going to have to wrap your child in bulletproof uh, vests. And now we're just going to have to figure out how to survive a nuclear holocaust in Sweden because we just have to join NATO. Uh, And it's really... It's uh, it's infuriating and it's absolutely disgusting. Sweden is basically just the lapdog of U.S. empire at this point, and honestly has been for quite some time. Sean, the the, the quote that you shared by right. Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson about you know cracking down on terrorism that's just a, a you know that's just a lovely little uh, handout to U.S. empire to show hey we're willing to play along with you. Uh, and I've said for quite some time that what Sweden and the rest of the EU really needs to do uh, to to you know, to give us some kind of semblance at a future is to collectively stand up to the US and say, y'all need to sit down and stop it because you're ruining the planet and we're not going to play along anymore. But of course, Sweden is not doing that at all right now. They're doing the exact opposite. And it's 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 absolutely disgusting. And I again I hate that I'm I'm in the camp where I'm waiting to see if Erdogan can save the day.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean we're we're in a topsy turvy time where A straight up war criminal like Henry Kissinger can almost sound like he's making sense sometimes. I think that really gives you an idea of uh, what we're dealing with. But uh, Jackie Lukman.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think that the fact that this is an issue with Turkey, uh, you know, opposing Sweden's possible admission into NATO really just I think it highlights the the reality that we really do not understand the depth and the breadth of U.S. influence, uh, the way they operate through other countries, through ally countries to continue to foment war and destabilization and terrorism, because for Turkey, These comments about fighting terrorism actually mean something quite tangible, because Sweden has been involved in backing terrorist groups that have been attacking Turkey. So, I mean, what... Can the Swedish uh, the Swedish government say to Erdogan that's going to make him uh, change his mind on being very skeptical on the Swedish government uh, being serious about uh, a terrorism when there's this long history of the Swedish government really funding people that commit terrorist acts in Turkey?
5: Yeah, absolutely, Jackie. And I, I mean, I think again, it just really highlights this. Uh, the, 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 clash between reality and Sweden's PR campaign. Uh, and you know, Sweden backs dictators just like the U S does because Sweden again is a lapdog of U S empire. And it's really, uh, it's really horrifying uh, to see that, you know, the, the kind of, and I, and I get so angry when people in the U S are like, Oh, but li- we should be more like Sweden. And I'm like, ugh. <laughs> um, and, and, and again, like I think that this is really uh, an important thing to to keep in mind, because something that I've talked to organizers in Sweden about is that, you know, there's a lot of solidarity to be had in the United States uh, because, you know, people in the U.S. are not for U.S. empire. And, you know, you can think if you're sitting in the U.S. that Sweden It is constituted of a bunch of Swedes who want to join NATO. But in fact, uh, specifically with this vote, you know, a lot of times NATO in the past has looked at majority opinion of a member state to uh, uh, approve the the, the membership. That's – not at all the case in Sweden uh, the Sweden the Swedish government has completely ignored calls to not join NATO uh, and you know there have been lots of protests there have been lots of demonstrations uh, there have been you know even Sweet, you know Swedish politicians that have come out uh, you know and 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 given speeches and said we can't do this this is very dangerous and so the Swedish government has just said says can't hear you and just bulldozed o- over any kind of public Public opinion to the contrary. And so. You know this is uh, this really highlights, and I think has started to, to, to we've started to see the facade of the Swedish progressivism flake in the case of NATO, uh, because it's very clear that Sweden does support terrorists, it does support war, it does make money off of the bloodlust and the hegemony of U.S. empire, and that is absolutely despicable, and something needs to be done to stop that. Uh, and even Putin, who. <laughs> Has made it very clear. Don't join. Do it. It's it's. I feel like it's rare in geopolitics that you have a very clear like, hey, here's going to be the the cause, uh, or or the effect of what you're doing, and yet here we have a very clear cut. This is what's going to happen. It's not going to be good if you do this. And we're like, hey, let's do that thing that is very clear. What's going to happen is going to be very bad if we do it. And it's like, it's just, I mean, it would be hilarious if I didn't also think that we were all going to die because it's just so, it's like, we're so entrenched in the sycophancy of U S empire in Sweden that we can't even see the reality right in front of our eyes. And I think one of the things that's also contributing to this, to be honest, is that Sweden's like the OG enemy of, of Russia. Uh, You know, we've, Sweden has, like, hated Russia since, like, 1200, uh, and so I think this is only, you know, when I was growing up, like, in the 80s and 90s, there were always jokes about how there was, like, some old lady in the Swedish archipelago that saw a, a, a Soviet submarine that was, like, spying on us, I don't know, spying on us crayfishing, I don't know, it, I mean, that's the <laughs> joke, it's like, why would the Russians care, they don't. Uh, And yet it's like this this continuation of an old feud. And now this kind of like Romeo and Juliet style feud where we don't even remember why we hate each other is literally coming to the point where we could annihilate the entire world just because we want to show the master Uncle Sam that we can play nice with him. And it's 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 absolutely abhorrent.
0: So what you're saying is Sweden hated Russia before it was cool. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, it's like it's like the hipster Russia hater. They were already yes, on it. Yes,
5: we, we are the hipster Russia haters. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and when you talk about Sweden's uh, uh, syncophancy to the west, I mean, I feel like. We see that throughout uh, Scandinavia and throughout the the Nordic countries that that, that have this image, I think, in the minds of people in the U.S., in the West, of being these like progressive, even socialist sorts of countries. There are even people that say, well, yeah, you know, we should have socialism, but, you know, like in the Nordic countries or like in in Sweden, not like, you know, uh, Venezuela or Cuba or, you know, the the, the big bad uh, socialist countries and, and things like this. So even when talking about socialism, they sort of use those countries to... Um, sort of divided up in this very, you know, sort of, frankly, a kind of uh, uh, lazy uh, uh, compare and, and contrast from good socialism and bad socialism. But I mean, how do you see that? Or do you even see that, Eleanor, that same sort of desire to just be, I don't even know if junior partner is the correct word to the United States to use, if there's something sort of um, maybe below that in terms of the status that they um, want to have. But um, how do you sort of see that, that kind of attitude towards the us and the west uh, throughout the the region eleanor in terms of how they orient towards washington
5: yeah i mean it, you you make a a very good point and i'd also point out that you know that uh, there, there's a lot of racism in that uh, calculation as well like oh we should be more like norway and sweden and not like venezuela and it's like mm. okay you're yeah. just saying that being <laughs> you know there's there's a lot of the white supremacy uh that coming to the fore in that as well and uh and I think that in terms of, of, of how I see this in in Sweden in particular I think a lot of this is steeped in a romanticization there's a lot of like circular romanticization happening here uh, and there's a lot of romanticization of US culture and you know I'm also that person in Sweden where you know I'm at a, a at a, like a checkout counter and I have to show them my ID when I'm buying some stuff and they're like oh my gosh you live in the US it's so cool I want to go there and I'm like no you don't listen <laughs> and, then like, and then like I hold up the entire line talking about how living in the U.S. is so oppressive and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also go visit because there are some really cool people there. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's this romanticization where literally when I lived in Los Angeles, people would ask me if I lived close to Brad Pitt or if I lived close to, and we can think that that's funny, but it's because the culture that is rammed out of the United States is not the culture... Of, uh, of, of you know, like what you see when you're on an Amtrak from DC to New York. It's not the hollowed out, uh, y- you know, the parts of Baltimore. It's not the, you know, it, 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 we're not looking at the, 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 the leftovers from, uh, from, uh, you know, corporate, uh, uh, corporate destruction. That's not what people are fed outside of the U.S. They think that everything is New York City, uh, Los Angeles, maybe a little bit New Orleans, Vegas. But it's not the lived experiences of people across the country. And so I think that this is a big issue that is causing people to think that following U.S. empire is a good idea because U.S. culture is cool, right? And Americans are cool and Americans are hip. And so they're – oh, and they had a black president, right? And they almost had a female president and isn't that – charming. And isn't that cool? And there's this very shallow understanding of what actually is the United States empire. And even if you say U.S. empire to a lot of folks here, they look at you like you just quoted Star Wars or something. And it's a very awkward moment where you kind of feel like you have to explain what that means in context. Uh, And so I think the problem is, is there's a comfortability with ignorance. There's a comfortability with the official story, the official PR campaign of Sweden, of the United States. And so I feel like as organizers, one of the prime things that I feel in both places is not just that I have to get the information out there, but I have to get to the point where people want to hear it, right? Because it's like, I have to get to the point where someone in Sweden will want to hear that the U.S. is a mess. Uh, And in fact, at a recent... At a recent rally that I spoke at uh, against NATO, uh, Sweden's NATO membership in Stockholm, somebody interrupted my speech to tell me that I was being unfair to Americans uh, in talking, basically in talking smack about U.S. empire. (laughs) And he felt the need to interrupt my speech to stand up for U.S. empire, and he didn't even realize what he was doing. But this is how embedded it is in people here, that U.S. empire and the U.S. is so cool that we have to stand up for it. And that includes being a member of NATO. That includes selling weapons. That includes uh, culturally and politically standing by the U.S.'s side. So that's it it is a big hurdle to get over, I, I think.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that's just an example of how profound uh, the propaganda is to where we feel that U.S. imperialism is a part of our identity and that when we speak about this government and, you know, and its crimes, you know, people even use terms like we and what we should do. Well, that's not, you know, I ain't a part of that. We, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, they don't think I am either. So that, that kind of clarity, I think, is so important. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on radio so can watch it in DC. One thing, Eleanor Goldfield, so much for joining us today we we'll back tomorrow with an all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.